Welcome back to the FS Podcast. And today, uh, Christian, Stephen, and I uh, were able to talk to Dr. Anthony Feinstein, who is a professor at the University of Toronto. He's one of the leading researchers when it comes to frontline journalists uh, that have been affected by covering war or natural disasters. Uh, he's done everything from the uh, documentary um, of Journalists Under Fire, and he has a book uh, called Shooting War. He's done lots and lots of material and research when it comes to uh, war journalists who's exposed themselves to this kind of work, such as Christian and I. So it was great to interview him and have a conversation. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Thank you for uh, joining our podcast. Um, you know, I've, I've known about your work for some time, especially the uh, documentary that you helped uh, journalists under fire. And I'm sure many of the journalists that you have interviewed played a big role into uh, Christian and I's lives of, you know, of wanting to cover conflict and, and war. And so I think just to start off, um, it would be great just to give a little bit if you can give a little bit about your background, um, uh, your past work, and maybe you know what you're currently doing um, right sure. now. All right. So, so thank you for the uh, the invitation to be with you. Um, so I'm in Toronto. I um, I'm a psychiatrist by training. I run a research lab as well. So I'm what's called a clinician researcher. I have a clinical practice that I do for two days a week, and I do research for the rest of my time. Um, although I have a long-standing passionate interest in journalism and conflict, my lab really focuses on a completely different area, which is multiple sclerosis. So I'm an MS researcher. Hmm. But um, for 20 plus years, I've also had a sideline, as it were, looking at journalists who cover war, how they're affected emotionally by their work, what motivates them to do it, and how I can help them with these challenges. My interest in the topic is is longstanding. Um, you can hear from my accent that I'm not Canadian. I'm South African by birth. Um, I grew up in South Africa. Being a white male, I had to do military service while I was there, and I was conscripted. I was a physician at the time. I got sent to a, a war in northern Namibia, Angola, where I worked as a medical officer. Wow. And I saw and I saw firsthand what war does to people, and how it can destroy societies and. I left South Africa during the apartheid years to uh, go and live in England, where I did my psychiatry training, and then from there, basically got headhunted to Toronto, where I have a faculty position at the university. So that's a quick summary of who I am in terms of my background. Um, so my interest in journalism, I think, to a degree, can be traced to what I saw as a young man working as a medical officer in a combat zone. And I saw the profound degree to which human behavior can change for the worst and for the best in, in zones of conflict. I never really devoted much time to trauma research until 20 years back, a patient was referred to my clinic who turned out to be a war journalist. And she had a very interesting presentation and she did very well with therapy. And she was a fascinating woman by nature of the work that she had done. And she explained to me that um, although she was part of a very large news organization, she couldn't reach out for help when she started to become emotionally unwell because she was concerned that this would be the end of her career, hmm. that she would no longer get sent back to do the kind of work that she loved. And I was intrigued by this, um, what struck me as a slightly punitive way of of dealing with people. And so I asked my MS research team to take the afternoon off and to go away and look and see what was published on this topic of journalism and war and emotional trauma. And they came back and told me that there wasn't a single publication. <laughs> wow. and the, year, the year was 1999. There wasn't a single publication. And so intrigued by this, I thought, well, you know, I'm interested in trauma. I'd seen trauma as a young man. I'd like to write a grant a proposal to people that I can fund the study, get funding for a study looking at frontline journalists and, and trauma. And so I wrote this grant and sent it to the Freedom Forum in Washington, D.C. I think you probably know, and they, they subsequently closed. I think they closed this year, last year. Yeah. But the 
Forum wrote back and said, hey, this is a great idea, go fund your study. And so that launched the first ever study of war, journalism, and trauma. And I found that journalists were very keen to talk to me and share their experiences. And the results of that study were published in the American Journal of Psychiatry, and that garnered a lot of attention. Suddenly, news organizations were looking at the study and saying, well, hold on, you know, we've got staff who have been traumatized by this work. To me, it wasn't a surprise, but to them, it's like a revelation that, yes, you know, you send young people off to war, some are going to become traumatized. And to their credit, they started to change a policy and make therapy available to journalists. So I thought, well, I've done this one study, I'll go back to doing my MS work. And then, as you know, 9-11 happened. And um, soon after 9-11, I was approached by CNN to say, you know, could you come down to New York and help our journalists? And I did that. And it was a, really a fascinating journey to see our journalists initially distressed by their, their, their trauma recovered, recovered well with therapy and with the passage of time. And so that was my second foray into journalism. And then the world being what it is, soon after that, the war in Iraq started in 2003. And I was approached by news organizations to say, well, we know you've done this work you know, up till now, but can you answer the question of whether being embedded with the military is good for a journalist or not? Is it helpful if we attach our journalists to the, you know, the, the, the combat unit, or should they be independent of, of, of soldiers? And so we did a study investigating that. And so bit by bit, my work has evolved according to questions asked of me by news organizations. Hmm. In the mid-decade, the, mid, the, mid the last decade, I was approached by UNESCO to undertake a study looking at journalists covering the drug trade in Mexico. Very, very dangerous work. And so I did a study showing how this was having a profound effect on journalists doing this work. And subsequent to that, I've done work on journalists working in Syria, in Iran, in Kenya, most recently Afghanistan. We've looked at the concept of user-generated content. You know, these journalists who are sitting in newsrooms all day just screening this tough visual material. Yeah. And more recently, we've done some research looking at moral injury in journalists covering the refugee crisis in Europe. So you can see that over the past 20 years, I've done a number of studies in, in large measure dictated by what news organizations are interested in and also what interests me. Wow. Um, no, that's great. I know like your work and some of the journalists that you profiled, um, are you still in contact with a lot of the older generation of journalists? Um, or do you keep in touch and how they are now doing after they spent some time, you know, taking a break from war and how they're coping? You know, that's a great question. I don't know the answer to that. And, and, and someone's asked that question before. So I do my research and then you know, in some cases, I remain in contact with the journalists. I've remained in contact with many photojournalists. Um, and last year, as part of my shooting war project, mm. um, we brought 10 of those journalists to Toronto for a two-day meeting. And, you know, they are not old, but they're not the new generation of photojournalists. So we're talking about Santiago Lyon and Corinne Dafka and yeah. uh, Ron Haviv. We even managed to get Tim Page to come all the way from Australia for this. Wow. And, um, so we had this fascinating two-day meeting of, you know, some of the generation's greatest war photographers all in one, up on the stage, in one, one stage talking about their work and their life and how they've been affected. David Guttenfelder was there, Carol Guzzi. Um, it was a wonderful two-day meeting. So, I've, you know, I've retained contact with some journalists like that, but... You know, I've researched now over close to a thousand frontline journalists, and it's not possible to remain. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you might go crazy if you talk to all of them. <laughs> <laughs> Christian, you had a question. Yeah, it's fascinating. I think um, it's interesting to be doing it because obviously, with your research being mainly focused on MS and your, your uh, clinical practice. I find it very, very interesting that you would keep returning to this. I wonder if that's simply by nature of it being something that you discovered was underserved. But I also, I also would further, I would be interested in whether you're actually also interrogating something that was deeper in you from when you were in Namibia. I wonder if, if this is sort of a longer, a longer interrogation of something within you that is a mystery that you're still unraveling, that you see uh, similarities in. Yeah, no, it's a great question. 
I, I don't think it's the latter. Um, you know, Namibia took place 35 years ago, and but no doubt it had a very profound formative influence on me, um, because it cemented my my love of psychiatry to begin with. I was you know, not convinced I was going to do psychiatry as a career, um, but I saw so many remarkable behavioral changes in people in war zones yeah. that I became fascinated by behavior. And, you know, and while I certainly did not want to do my military service, I was really opposed to apartheid. I was very clear. I'd like to go on record and say that. And I never carried a gun. I carried a medical bag. Um, but paradoxically, this period in my life that I didn't want to be part of ended up having this profound influence on my career because it it, it got me interested in psychiatry and human behavior. And, and I've, not lost, I've not lost that interest. And, you know, you will know this. You have been to war zones yourself. You see how war brings out the best and the worst in people. And I, you know, and, and I wrote about this. I actually published my, um, you know, when I was up in Namibia and working as a medical officer, I was with a very small group of men in a very isolated area. I, I, I observed their behavior and I wrote, I wrote a paper on what it was like to be in the front lines of conflict as a you know, psychiatric medical officer observing people. And I published that in the American Journal of Psychiatry. So even back then, I had this desire to do research and was fascinated by the way people's behavior changed in, in extreme situations. And I think in part that has that, that explained my enduring interest in this topic. But I think what's taken over in a much more deeper way is I just find journalists very interesting. Um, number one, you're very creative. You know, you write beautifully or you take, you know, fantastic photographs. You're a creative group of individuals. And then, you know, ally that to the group that I've studied have voluntarily put themselves in the front lines of war for 20 years or more. There's no other profession that does this. You know, not even soldiers have this longevity of exposure to war. I mean, soldiers have a tour of duty, maybe two, maybe three, and then it stops. Mm -hmm. But the group that I've studied have gone back repeatedly to conflict, whether it was the Balkans, you know, then Afghanistan, then Syria, then, you know, wherever it is, they keep on going back to conflict. And so their cumulative exposure to danger is unrivaled by any profession. And as someone who's intrigued by human behavior, that interests me. You know, why are you doing it? What are, what's motivating you to do this? Well, and of course, what are the consequences of that? But that's what the last 20 years of this research has been devoted to. Um, and, you know, as my work evolves, more questions surface, they need answering. And, you know, I'm now moving very much into moral injury, which is something that has hardly been looked at in journalists, but the military know about this, have known about it for decades. That's interesting going to the, I want to follow up on the moral injury question, but I, I, I love how you said it's, you know, it brings up more questions. We've come, I think, over the last few years, as we've gotten a little older and married and, uh, you know, other developments, you know, we have that constant questioning of why, why are we doing this? And it's, we've settled down in our travels quite a bit, but the, the obvious uh, answer we would have consistently when we were younger, of, well, of course we're going here, of course we're going to go there. We, we didn't stop to sort of ask why. But yeah. the consistent re-traumatizing that we would willingly sort of bring upon ourselves by going to these places, you know, it's only as I get a little older that I start to, you know, look deeply at what that is, what that thing within myself or within Dylan or within the rest of the journalists who do what we do, what that thing in us is crying out for or what that desire is to fill. Because I know for soldiers, you know, you have the shared burden with with your platoon with your battalion brother you know you basically get to you get to spread the trauma over a group and you're doing it for each other you know i know that um war is one of the only times that i don't mean to specify gender here but i will for this case war is the only time that men can really show unconditional love for each other without it seeming odd and i know it's interesting in the way of for journalists we don't have that camaraderie as much because if you know a lot of journalists they're quite suspicious of each other and so to sort of have the trauma and then also the isolation of, you know, you get your story over here and don't help the others over here. You know, I, I think there's a there's a definite um, poison to that. It's extremely unhealthy in a way that when you're a soldier, you you're able to share a, a moral 
not superiority, but health in some ways. Does that make sense? Yeah, um, yeah, it does to a degree. Although I have to say that my uh, my exposure to um, many frontline journalists, and I mean, I, I've actually found this there's quite a strong bond between them. I've, you know, the same thing you've spoken about the way soldiers have this kind of bond that comes with combat. I mean, I've certainly seen that the journalists who, you know, for example, covered the Balkans and you know lived through this for many years. They've, they've formed very strong bonds. Um, and it was striking that when we had this shooting war event in Toronto last year and we brought these journalists to Toronto, they, you know, they, this was a group that had worked together intensely, say, in the Balkans, and then they'd gone their own separate ways. I mean, I could see that they were, they were, clo- they were very close to one another. There's this kind of bond that soldiers had formed had taken root in, in, the, in these journalists as well, which I found really quite, quite touching. And I think was in many ways protective for them. That allowed them um, to get through some really difficult, difficult experiences. Mm-hmm. But, but, but you know, where, where I think you, you're correct is that whereas the military has often provided very strong institutional support to soldiers, news organizations have not done it to their journalists. And so, you know, they've gone through these very intense, difficult experiences over many years, and they haven't had the resources at times to help them deal with what they were feeling emotionally. Yeah, and that's been, and that's been the challenge. Especially- I think that gets to, I think that definitely gets to more of the point that I was uh, going for. I, I don't think I communicated it as well as I could have. Obviously, Dylan and I and our fixes and some of the journalists that were on the ground in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria. You know, we love those people. We still talk to them. You know, we have those shared burdens. I think it is much more to what you were saying towards the end of it, which is the news organizations, the pressure to achieve, the pressure to sort of beat the other organization to getting this thing. Yeah, I think that's more of it. So you've got sort of the almighty uh, corporation that is eyeing you as something dispensable instead of something that is um, essential. Um, but but that's that's fascinating, Dylan. Did you have a follow up? Uh, yeah, I would say most of my experience, I, I I probably should have done a better job of being connected with the journalist community when I was overseas. I spent so much of my time with locals. Um, I would live with the local people. I would live with local military people. I would really put my time with the local people, and like I knew there were houses that had like. 20 journalists in there and they had great and I would go over and hang out with them. We would go to, you know, a bar after going to the front lines and re-link up. But I I really spent most of my time with like local journalists or local fixers and spend time, have tea, spend time with their family. Um, But they, I, one of the questions I was wondering is people like in Iraq, it seemed like, the local people, whether journalists or fixers, coped with seeing awful things or stress much better than I did, especially when I would go back home and have a really hard time. I, I, I know a lot of people in Iraq, especially mm-hmm. I'm 31, so there's people my age who spent their entire life you know, going through this. And it almost seems like they're kind of like a surgeon where they're so used to it. And so I was just wondering if you spent any time uh, talking to local journalists who live like in Iraq and Afghanistan, if they have the same kind of issues as foreign correspondents who go there and come back. We have, yes, very much so. And um, and I don't think that the news is good. I mean, my first my first um, exposure to that was Mexican. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I I spent I went back to Mexico City six times to get this UNESCO study started, and um, in the end, we got some really strong data. And what we showed was that, you know, the local Mexican journalists covering the drug cartels are getting hammered, um, and they can't escape. That's the difference. You know, the Western journalists can fly in and fly out. But the Mexican journalists can't escape, and so they're kind of living in it. And as you know, the bad, the bad guys, the drug cartels, and even the government at times, corrupt police, corrupt local officials, oh, yeah. Mex- um, target, target the journalist. And they don't just target the journalist; they target the their family. 
Yeah, and that we show, we have really strong data to show that the moment the families are being targeted, the distress levels in the journalists ratchet upwards. And, um, and so that was a, a horrendously difficult experience, obviously, for the journalists to go through. Plus, you know, Mexican news organizations were not doing anything to help the journalists. Um, they were just kind of ignoring this problem. They were giving them, you know, arguably the world's most dangerous job at one point to do. And the journalists were being, you know, kidnapped. They were getting killed. Their families were getting targeted. And there was no support for them. And that that was striking. So, you know, UNESCO published that and highlighted the plight of Mexican journalists. Interestingly enough, last week I was on a program with Mexican journalists in which, you know, we went back through the same looking at my studies and data nothing's changed but here we are almost 10 years on from that mexican study and still mexican journalists are being are being hammered in this fashion and then the, the most recent study that we've done to, to 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 follow up on your on your point was that we've looked at journalists in afghanistan and and in afghanistan if anything it's even more difficult because you know within mexico there is a culture of talking about mental health. You can go and see a psychiatrist. I, I've been the guest of you know, my academic colleagues in Mexico where there's some really excellent psychiatric expertise in Mexico. But in Afghanistan, you don't have that. And so you've got this country that's you know on the brink in which journalists are being targeted by the Taliban and also at times by the government in which um, life is so dangerous right. for journalists. And there is no psychological expertise, or very little, not no, there's very little psychological expertise in the country. I mean, the World Health Organization published a report a couple of years back saying that, you know, psychiatric services in Afghanistan were were sketchy, hmm. and the quality of the service was poor. And so, you know, we, we published this paper this year showing that Afghan journalists have very high rates of post-traumatic stress disorder, and they're just not getting the help for it. And so, um, and they can't escape it. You know, this is their society. They, they, they can't leave. So I think in many ways, the plight of the local journalist who's doing this work, who's, who's, by, you know, who's, who's, who's being asked to cover such dangerous work, their plight is even harder than the Western journalist, I think. It's, um, yeah, and they're watching him taking foreigners to specific areas and have to watch over them, that whole stress level. So yeah. I, I, I always try to talk about the local fixers or local people just because they if you're a journalist going into a war zone it's almost 99 percent is who your local partners is you know in a lot of ways especially in in conflict zones yeah that's no, a good point and i think the um you know you know this firsthand but these journalists are having a tremendous a tremendous you know a really bad time uh, dealing with the trauma that they have to do and um there doesn't seem to be any way out of it for them because yeah. They can't leave the country. The country is perpetually in conflict. It's exhausting. The conflict never stops. Um, they're concerned about the welfare of their family, which I say ratchets up their level of anxiety. And then in the case of a country like Afghanistan, you just don't have adequate, good psychiatric care to address this problem. Yeah, uh, It's fascinating. I, and I think especially one thing I've noticed that we've heard a lot from our local fixers and also local journalists on the ground is in the last four years, as the news cycle has, has turned inward and more, you know, to domestic issues and the rise of nationalism in a lot of different Western nations, you know, the endless wars continue. And yet, you know, a lot of what the j local journalists went through seemed bearable when the eyes of the world was on it. It was like, well, I'm going through this so people will see what I'm, what my output is. People will see what's going on. But now when it's, you know, U.S. domestic um, news and uh, domestic news in a lot of uh, countries having an internal crisis, the local journalists are basically flung out there saying, well, I'm still doing this job that I'm being traumatized daily doing, and yet no one is reading, no one is watching. And as the revenue goes down and the new business models of media and journalism and it's much more facebook and social media it becomes a case of is this is there any long-term uh way forward for what journalism was and what it and what it um used to be because at this point you know we have this feedback loop of uh, seeing everything all the time constantly and for journalists it's i i, I worry 
uh, what the future will be for that. Do you have any thoughts on on what uh, on what could be the next stage of what journalism will look like? Do you think it will be worse in the ways of what you're studying, or do you see some hope there? You know, I, I I'm cautious in answering a question like this because I'm not a journalist and I'm, I don't study the media. I study you know, mental health, yeah. um, but you know. There's good hard data to show that, that in societies that are perpetually in conflict, the, 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 um, the consequences on mental health are stark and severe. Uh, that emerged very clearly during the prolonged civil wars in the Balkans. Hmm. Um, so society pays a tremendous price for this kind of conflict. Um, and I've no doubt that in places like Afghanistan right now, where there is just ongoing severe trauma in which, you know, as a journalist said to me, you know, the Afghan journalist said to me, we never know when you wake up in the morning whether we're going to survive the day or not. You yeah. know, so imagine going to work with this. And if this is, you know, this is your, if this is your standard way of working, it's very, very unhealthy. And, um, and you need to see that against the backdrop of a society that's getting hammered as well, with suicide bombings and um, you know, schools getting targeted and weddings. And, you know, so the level of violence is so high that you know, I can say with a great degree of certainty that this is going to leave and has left the Afghan population. I'm just Afghan in one example, Afghanistan in one example. It's left this country with a very significant mental health problem. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how are they going to address that? That's the big challenge. Um, it's very hard to address it when trauma is still taking place on a daily basis, you know. It's hard to go and say, okay, we're going to give you therapy today when tomorrow, you know, you, other, your friends are going to get blown up and just re-traumatize one. And so you know, that's one of the challenges. But, you know, I am optimistic and there are ways to do this. And I learned this from, you know, my, my contact with anthropologists and I'll give you an example. You know, Mozambique went through a prolonged civil war, a very brutal civil war decades back. It destroyed the country. Yeah. It, it reduced it to a point where at one, at one stage, Mozambique was the world's poorest country. <laughs> and so at the end of that, you know, when communities had been decimated by civil war, we're talking about civil war over here, and communities had turned on one another, neighbors had turned on one another. How are you going to fix that? You know, Western psychiatry can't go in and deal with that. The United Nations are not going to go in and deal with that. So what people had to do was develop their own homegrown model. How do we heal ourselves? How can we come to terms with what, which is what has happened to us? And how can we move on from that? And they came up with a model that allowed them to do it. People are creative. They realized that if we're going to be stuck perpetually in a cycle of revenge and retribution, and we're going to live in the past and not let bygones be bygones, we will never move on. We will continue to destroy one another and essentially consume ourselves. And so that's very, very painful. You can imagine what this is like. But they, they essentially welcome villages and aspects of their society welcome back into the midst the kind of people who have been perpetrating violence on them. It yeah. was like acceptance and a forgiveness and to say, okay, come back and talk about what's happened and to discuss what is done and make your you know, absolutions and and regrets, but we're going to move on. We, we, we're not going to remain trapped by this violence. Hmm. And I think you know, that, that takes an extraordinary courage and forgiveness and an extraordinary mental construct to do it. But they did it to a degree, which allowed them to move on. And one can hope that in a place like Afghanistan, and I keep on coming back to it because this is a, you know, it's so fresh in my mind, we've just finished a study on our Afghan journalists. My hope is that an Afghan society will be able to do a similar thing, yeah. that people can move on from the horrors of what they've had to endure for the past 40 years. Mm-hmm. Because if they can't, then essentially society will dismantle and crumble and fall apart. That's right. And I th- it's fascinating extrapolating sort of a single person being traumatized to, you know, a nation being traumatized. I, I yep. mean, on the subject of healing, I, I don't want this to be too harsh of a segue but you know it's interesting in the way of for ptsd in journalists and also in uh, members of the military we've been looking into some aspects of virtual reality in the way of uh, the 360 immersive side um and so i was wondering if get to that in a second does the brain this gets more to your research i think 
does the brain change like physiologically when exposed to trauma like of course i know there's you know the emotional side effects but but the physiology of the brain are there changes that that are irrevocable when that happens well it certainly changes because whatever you feel emotionally has been generated by the brain whatever you feel physically has been generated by brain function so absolutely the brain changes the brain changes you know, we, we divide our brain changes into structural, does the anatomy, the course anatomy of the brain change? And the function, does the function of the brain change? And the answer is does. And, um, the, you know, one of the big problems with prolonged trauma that's not addressed, where you can't move on from it, is that you are living in a constant state of stress. Yeah. And your body putting out, you know, stress hormones like cortisol. <clears throat> and high levels of cortisol are not good for the brain and high levels of cortisol can lead to um, areas of brain atrophy or shrinkage of the brain that can have you know permanent effects and so um, there is no doubt that prolonged um, emotional trauma will affect the brain structurally and functionally which is one of the reasons why therapy is so important and therapy given early on because the longer you wait in medicine in general the longer you wait, the worse the outcome. So you want to be able to intervene early to reduce this level of distress, bring down stress, and you know help a person deal emotionally and return their emotions to some kind of healthy baseline. Because if you don't do it, there are going to be you know consequences, long-term consequences on brain structure and function. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's pretty close to me because I've you know I'm 31, so I've been doing this since I was like 20, and uh, never, I went into one therapist, but never, never doesn't, didn't have experienced anything in the field wise, like as far as conflict, but he was certified to be a psychiatrist for PTSD. Right. I spent one hour and left and then never went back. And so I, like, I am lucky to where I, I'm, I'll be married for six years next month which is pretty rare. And I would say my therapist has always been my wife and because she's been a really yeah. incredible and I got really lucky with that. And so there are some things that I'm still working on. And so, and feel free to ask us questions too. In yeah, words, no, I mean, no. I think, you know, you, you, I should have made this point early on and I think it's a really important point. And Correct. I'll say it over and over again. The majority of journalists who do this kind of work do not have PTSD. They do not have depression. You know, this is not a this is not a profession that is riddled with PTSD and depression. It's not. That's good to know. Uh, and so, you know, many many people go off and do this work for a long time and don't develop the things that I'm talking about. So it's a minority that succumb to this, but the minority is not a small one. It's you know, the journalists who do this kind of frontline work are much more likely to have post-traumatic stress disorder than a journalist who stays home in a state in a safe society any reports on arts or diet or nutrition or whatever. So, so you know, <clears throat> that's the first point. The other point is that, and you raise it, good relationships are protective to mental health across the board. Hmm. And so if you've got good, you know, a good, a good marriage or a good relationship with your partner, good friendships, these things are protective in terms of one's mental well-being, not just for something like post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, for general. Even for major mental illnesses like schizophrenia, for example, the most severe of all mental illnesses, if you were able to establish good relationships before the onset of your, your illness and you've you know, been able to maintain that, it becomes a powerful protective factor in terms of your mental well-being. And this is one of the things that I try and put across in my work with frontline journalists is to let them know that you know, good relationships are good for you. They are protected in terms of your mental well-being. You know, yes, you're going to live your, your life passionately. You're going to put all your energies into your work, but also devote energy and time to your relationships because it just makes you a stronger person emotionally. Yeah. Totally. I, it's fascinating. I mean, on a larger point, just for the general life, you know, that advice, absolutely. But I think it's fascinating. It brings up something that I think Dylan and I, when traveling together, we always had each other, you know, stayed in the same hotel rooms, we were all at the same places, we saw the same things. And I, I know I speak for myself when none of those experiences we experienced together affected me in a way that would be described as, you know, extremely traumatically. The only time that I've had an experience that, you know, I was diagnosed with PTSD for this experience was when he and I were on a trip. Oh, I was on a trip without him. 
which is when I, I was tortured um, coming out of Syria. And so it was really a case of, it's fascinating you mentioned that, because the one time I was separated from my safe partner during this work is the one time that it took root uh, in the mind. So that, that's interesting Interesting to mention. I know for Dylan as well, when you were, you took one trip without me to Iraq, and when that was when um, you had uh, your experience. Yeah, for me, I've never had anything physically happen to me, even though we've had close calls, you know, sniper fire, mortar rounds hitting the top of our car, but it was like a dud, so it just bounced off. Uh, but for me, it's always been like countless imagery of kids and the most awful thing you can th you could see to kids, especially the I, I covered almost the entire Mosul operation, which I think after you know down the road I think it was one of the largest urban warfares since maybe World War II something right. like that. It it felt like very close to like what you would see in Save It Private Ryan in a close like when they were in inside the city. So. Um, so yeah, I would say Christian and I, when we were separated and did different projects on our own, there was definitely an uptick of not knowing, you know, coping with different problems. So mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, good, good points. Yeah, and and so that kind of lead we we've been doing virtual reality and filming three hundred and sixty since two thousand fifteen. Mm -hmm. And so I was wondering if, if seeing Im is seeing imagery of that kind of stuff, is there any benefits as far as the research part, or is that just going to harm? Because um, we have been working on some VR films that the show, like if people want to see what frontline and what trauma is like, such as kids being hurt, as kids screaming, having a, a PTSD attack in the middle of an interview. And then seeing journalists like witnessing that stuff. So if someone wanted to see like, okay, here is what a, a war journalist goes through, through a immersive experience, which might be a little bit too intense. Is, is that just going to cause more problem or is there any kind of research that may, I know this is something it's new and it's not, right. there's no clinical trials or there might be. So just your opinion on it. Well, um, you know, one of the, the, you know, when you look at the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, you divide them into different categories. And you know, the first category is re-experiencing the trauma. So that can be, you know, unwanted recollections or memories of it, sights or sounds or smells. You don't want it. It just intrudes unconsciously into, mm -hmm. into your recollection, maybe flashbacks or nightmares. So that's the re-experiencing. The second group of symptoms refers to avoidance in which you make a conscious effort to avoid recollections of it. You know, it's just too painful. You don't want to think about it. You don't want to have a flashback. You don't want to smell those 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 smells. You so you do whatever you can to try and avoid that by distracting yourself, by doing something different, uh, by staying away from reminders of it. And the other so the two other broad symptom groupings. One is your autonomic nervous system becomes over-aroused, so you become irritable, you can't concentrate, you can't fall asleep, you have a startle response, you're hypervigilant. And the fourth symptom grouping refers to this almost like a depressive feeling. You start anticipating negative events. And you know, you think of the future, more negative things are going to happen to you, and things that you could enjoy in the past, you can't enjoy anymore. So you know, when you go into this immersive experience that you describe, what you're doing is that you are really um, pushing back against the avoidance. You know, you are really bringing the trauma in a very real way back to the person. Now, you know, if a person's got full-blown PTSD, um, you would have to be careful of that, of course. But if that's going to be practiced together with therapy, in other words, correct? Yeah. Well, you know, we'll have avoid. You know, we'll, we'll try and overcome your avoidance by exposure. And then as part of exposure, you're going to get therapy with a skilled psychologist or psychiatrist. <laughs> and that might be helpful because one of the one of the challenges of, of therapy is that you want to overcome this avoidance. You know, you need to get rid of the avoidant behavior because the avoidance can be so destructive. And so I'm aware of a literature that proposes using, as you said, um, virtual reality as a way of recreating a traumatic event, exposing a person to it 
without the risk of the person getting killed, of course, but then using that as a conduit to therapy and helping them with their emotions that, are, that, that, that arise from this. Because um, remember this, the person who's traumatized retains a physiological imprint of their trauma. Hmm. This is a very deep protective mechanism that we have as a species. When something bad happens to us, our body remembers it. We might not be consciously aware of it, but our body retains an imprint of it through a process of conditioning. For example, you know, when we go up to a hot stove, we don't put our hand on the stove because we know it's going to give us pain. And when our hand gets close to the stove, we pull it away because we're not, we don't want to get burnt. We don't think about all of that. It's done instinctively, right? right. We don't think, oh, yes, this is going to burn me. I better pull my hand away. You do it and you instinctively pull your hand away. We've learned that through conditioning, through priming. We know that this is an, you know, this deeply built defense mechanism that says, don't go there because you're going to get hurt. We don't yeah. have to consciously think of it. It just happens. And it's the same with trauma. That you know, we can have a conscious memory of what happened. We can remember the mortar that landed on the roof of your car. But there are going to be other things that you might not remember. But your body retains a physiological imprint of that, which is not something that you're not consciously aware of. And so... With that, with, that, with that understanding, when you put a person into a traumatic experience through virtual reality, the body is going to awaken those memories, those deeply um, embedded physiological memories are still there and will respond potentially to what you're doing, which could explain why people become so distressed by these recollections that you, you know, you could put someone into a private Ryan type movie and hey, it's scary, but you know, you, the movie finishes and you're going to have a meal but put a traumatized person, immerse them into the intensity of that, and you will get a fundamentally different response. Right. Because their body is reacting physiologically differently to what they are experiencing. Hmm. And you should look at the work of Bessel van der Kolk, who is a okay. psychiatrist in Boston, who has written about the physiological imprint of trauma, that your body retains this physical memory of trauma. It's fascinating. I, I know when we were doing, you know, some film festival routes and they would show sort of like a little uh, clip of, uh, you know, things that we had covered. There were a few times I would be doing the Q&A and um, they would show it above for the audience to see before opening up the panel. And a few times uh, it would get to a point where I would just have a full blown, you know, panic attack just with the certain sound of specific uh, yeah. rounds that we used at gunfire and all of this. And then obviously you know, you get to a point where you start to investigate it and try and uh, recover a little bit. But I think one of the interesting things, even just mentioning uh, the negative experience, a few questions back, my central nervous system went into a, <laughs> into a, a tightening because, as you say, the physiology is there. I think one of the things I, that I've been interested in, I, I would love to know your opinion on this, is the use of psilocybin in therapy. Um, I know that MDMA is extremely well studied for uh, PTSD, but um, what about the other substances? Do you have any thoughts yeah. on that? You know, one thing, and I haven't done this work, and I am, I am, I am you know, familiar with the literature. I mean, the, the principle behind it is this, is um, you want to try and take the sting out of your traumatic recollections. Yeah, right. So, um, as, I, as I mentioned to you, one of the hallmarks of trauma is that people avoid, consciously avoid recollections of what's upsetting them. You don't want to think about this. You don't want to go back to the scene of your trauma. Um, you know, you find your flashbacks very upsetting. In the context of these mind-altering drugs, like you've just mentioned, um, people can revisit their trauma without feeling that level of emotional distress. Hmm. That's, that's one of the principles behind it. And so by um, helping people go back to think about their trauma, not to avoid it, to confront it in a way, but to do it at a time in which through medication, your body is not going to experience this overwhelming sense of distress. That could be therapeutic. And so by going through this process a number of times, you break down the avoidance. You allow people to confront their past traumas without having this catastrophic emotional reaction. And by doing that sequentially, you can start healing. Hmm. 
There are other ways to do it. There's something called prolonged exposure therapy in which this is exactly what therapists do, but you don't use medications. But you gently take the person back to the trauma. You expose them again, bit by bit, while helping them relax, by dealing with the emotional consequences of this re-experiencing. And bit by bit, you break it down that way. And, you know, this has got a, the, the principles behind this have a long history in behavioral medicine. The classic example of this is phobic avoidance. You know, the kid that gets bitten by a dog and then develops a phobia for a dog. And every time he sees the dog, he, he runs away from a dog. And as an adult, it's still there. So when he sees a dog, he crosses the street to avoid the dog. Well, one way of doing that is through exposure therapy. You bring the individual back with a phobic object, which is the dog. And gradually you expose the person to this phobia. And what happens is that the emotional responses, the distress starts attenuating. And so the person becomes more comfortable with it. But it's the same principles with this overwhelming trauma that you re-experience, you, you encourage the person to, to, to go back and recollect and think about what they've been avoiding, but you do it in a way that um, is less distressing, whether it's through prolonged exposure therapy or using mind-altering substances that you that you've spoken about. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, as is, um, we have a few more questions because I know you're, you have a busy schedule. I'm good until two o'clock, so we can go. Yeah. Yeah, and so it's um, what I guess was kind of like the last part I want to talk about. What are some things that journalists who cover war that could get better? Is it is it therapy or each person's kind of different? You know, what should like, what should we do? do? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you, guys, you guys look fine for me, so. Um, <laughs> Now, the, you know, once again, to repeat, the majority of journalists are not traumatized by it. I mean, you know, you all have memories of terrible things that you've seen, but that doesn't mean you are traumatized by that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there isn't a frontline journalist I've met who doesn't have this whole repository of terrible memories going back over, you know, 20 years. Like in medicine, you know, as physicians, you remember um, things in the emergency room, things in the operating room right. that were awful, you know. But that doesn't necessarily make you traumatized by that. You become traumatized when your memories get in your way of functioning, when you can't pursue your career or it starts, you know, undercutting your relationships. And the moment your emotional symptoms start doing that, that's when you've got a problem. But a memory by itself is not necessarily a problem. That's really good. Yeah. Because I I, I do know that some journalists that will go, you know, they might overhype things i was like well let's break it down and stuff so it but it is a sensitive subject to talk to people about that kind of stuff yeah, yeah. yeah it is. but i mean my my message which is which i repeat time and time again is that you, you know the profession's in a better shape when you are educated about this topic so when you know about trauma and you understand it, you understand how it can manifest what causes it how it can be dealt with how it can be treated what you should do what you shouldn't do by educating journalists in this fashion, journalists become stronger. You become stronger as a person and you become stronger as a journalist. Because bottom line is, you know, journalism depends on healthy journalists. And news organizations are the better for having healthy journalists. No one wants to be traumatized. You know, it's the obvious to say that. And so, you know, don't let people suffer unnecessarily. You know. It's embarrassing to be traumatized as well, which is not something that people really think about. Like it's embarrassing to have these things sort of, you know, uh, come into your daily life and impede you from doing normal things. It's embarrassing to talk about with a partner. It's embarrassing to sort of admit, you know, you you mentioned that Martha Gellhorn, the name of the the book was Nothing Ever Happens to the Brave. I thought that was a fascinating point uh, that you sort of drilled down into in the way of this veneer of invincibility, because that's, you know, the the mythologizing that we do of this, you know, profession, even the ones of us who have been traumatized within it is ongoing, you know, and it's, it's interesting in the way of the vulnerability needed to actually heal is most uh, notably absent in this profession, I find. Yeah, it is. I mean, I think that was a problem, certainly 20 years back when I started to do it, because it just wasn't a culture of talking about this as well. But I think what you've tapped into is the broader issue of stigma in relation to mental illness. You know, people, you know, it's much easier for for someone to say, hey, I broke my leg yesterday, than to say, hey, I broke my psyche, you know. (laughs) And that's, you know, that's the reality that we confront all the time as as mental health specialists. But, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll share some really impressive data with you, encouraging data. 
we've just finished a study looking at how journalists have been covering the pandemic, the COVID pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, it goes without saying that this is the biggest health story that's been around, you know, for, for, for such a long time. And we showed that those news organizations who provided therapy to journalists and, de and journalists made use of the therapy, those journalists were in a much better psychological state than the journalists who hadn't received therapy. It's quite striking. Wow. And, so, and in fact, 53% of our sample had gone to talk to someone in relation to what they were feeling emotionally as part of their work covering the pandemic, mm. which is great because, you know, 20 years back, this wasn't happening. This wasn't yeah. happening at all. So 20 years on, 20 years, believe it or not, is not a long time in medical history. But in 20 years, there's now a recognition on the part of good news organizations that this is an important topic and that we should make therapy available to journalists if they need it. And the journalists who make use of it are in a much better state psychologically than those who never got therapy or who refused it when you're dealing with a difficult story like the pandemic. So that's encouraging to me. That's a real positive shift. That's a change. That's great. It'd be great that you guys are going to be aware of. Because, I mean, you probably worked as freelancers, correct? Correct. Yeah. They don't. You don't have access to what I'm just talking about. You know. No, right. So you know what the data that I've got in relation to the pandemic comes from journalists working for news organizations who are now looking after their journalists the way they should. They Which is good. Yeah. Yeah. But they're doing it now. The freelancers are still out there, and they don't have this. Yeah. We'll, yeah, which I mean leads to you know all of the self-medicating that you know we we're we're very well acquainted with. You know, uh, there's a lot of us in recovery. There's a lot of us that aren't. Yeah, um, so, um, yeah. it was fascinating. Well, um, I know you probably you have uh, you have a class coming up, and I, I we we could talk to you for multiple times, and you you uh, we would love to talk with you again down the road. Um, this has been really impactful and we love the work that you do and um, we'll, we'll try to do something else down the road. And maybe when we finish our VR film, we can send it to you and see what you think. Yeah. Thank you. I'd like to see that. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, yeah. sir. Of course. Thank you. Thank you for the, good luck with your work. Thank you. All right, bye.